Gracious God and Holy Father, we are blessed indeed to be able to approach you in confidence and assurance that our way has been made. There's no danger, no harm awaiting us. In our sin, we are judged. In our sin, we face your wrath. But thanks be to God, Christ has removed our sin and made us acceptable in your sight. And it is in his blood, it is through his name this morning that we approach you. We are grateful for this gift of prayer, of intercession, of knowing that you are interested to hear or the feeble, frail expressions that we offer. But we're even more grateful to know that your spirit knows all the depths of our hearts and minds. You know all of our needs. You know all of the things that we have encountered in recent days. And Lord, you know all the things that we will face yet before us. And you have it all handled. You have it all secured. You have it all aligned with your purposes, your plans, to make your name great and to continue your work in our lives to edify us, Lord, to sanctify us, to make us look, be like Christ in this broken world. We pray this morning for our world, for indeed the brokenness is so rampant it is so obvious everywhere we look. We pray that you would give us encouraged hearts, that you'd give us a secure mind, free from anxiety, from fear, from trepidation, that we would lean heavily into your sovereignty and your control, your promises knowing that these things are not surprising to you. They may shock us, but they never surprise you. You have planned, you have allowed, you have ordained, and you bring all things to pass according to your pleasure. And for that, we are grateful. We pray, Lord, for the leadership, the civic leadership, national leadership, all around this globe that is struggling, struggling to make decisions, struggling, Lord, to actually be leaders rather than merely facilitators. The chaos is overwhelming. The confusion is just blinding. So we pray that you would minister to them, that you would draw their eyes, their focus, their hearts toward you. We pray that, Lord, your wisdom might overwhelm them. That they will do only that which is honorable and pleasing to your purposes. We pray for our community. What an opportunity you have granted to this church, Milton Community Church. The opportunity to be your city on a hill, here in this location. We know that we're surrounded by people who, Lord, have so much. We are all so affluent. It's so easy for us, Lord, to 
take solace in the things that we own, in the comfortable lives we live. We pray that that would never be true, that that would never be the case, that you would continue to remind us that our sin is ever before us and that we are desperately in need of you. That this church, Lord, might proclaim this gospel clearly, boldly, without reservation, Lord, without apology, for your glory, for your name's sake. Lord, for the furtherance of the gospel, for the advancing of your kingdom. We pray that, Lord, we might indeed be reflections of your glory throughout the darkness. The darkness, Lord, that may be camouflaged through our prosperity, but still exists. It still abounds before us. We pray for our sister churches in the area. We lift them up to you as they gather this morning in worship that they too might sense your presence and power and that they might see the opportunity before us here in this place to ring clear, loud, Lord, unassuming gospel truth into this culture. And that you would bless, that you would bless and multiply according to your purposes. Lord, we pray now through the remainder of this service as we direct our attention to this King of glory. To you, Lord, the Yahweh who is our all in all. Who is worthy of our praise and our worship. And you are only worthy of our praise and worship. Indeed, we pray that your greatness and your glory might abound before us this morning, that our sin, Lord, would not be ignored or forgotten, but that we would be broken over it, and that we would recognize the lengths that you have gone to, the condescension, Lord, of Christ into this world to be the substitute to take on the penalty of our sin that we might go free. Have your way here this morning. We pray that when we leave here in a few moments, we'll go forth with a greater appreciation for who you are and for what you have done for us and for our responsibility in conjunction with your gospel. Lord, we proclaim it not because we can produce conversions, because we can change lives, but we do it because you have commanded us to do it. And we do it out of love and worship and honor for you, that your name might be made great. As you continue to renew and restore this broken creation, and we pray this today. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Amen. Well, we have been in the Psalms for close to a year. This ancient hymnal manages to connect great theology with human emotion. From the mountaintops into the deepest, darkest valleys, this psalm this group of psalms enables us to have a sight line and a pathway to God. 
About one-third of the Psalms are laments. They are mournful songs. They're sad songs. They're filled with joy. They're filled with gladness, celebration, but also deep sorrow and much pain. This offers us some helpful insights for true worship, for how we are to approach the Lord in our worship. We don't come together week by week merely for a pep rally, uh, for a triumphant celebration of sorts. We come here to deal with our needs, our concerns in the context of who God is and all of his transcendency and glory. The Psalms call us to review, to know, to understand, to feel even our brokenness, and yet to help us understand that our brokenness is resolved in God's great glory. If you were to begin at Psalm 1 and look at Psalms 1 and Psalms 2, you would immediately remember that we're introduced to the blessed man, the portrait of a blessed man in Psalm 1. And that's quickly followed by Psalm 2 where we get a glimpse of the rebellious nature of human beings in contrast to the blessed man of Psalm 1. From Psalm 3 to Psalm 9, uh, David writing is dealing with Absalom's mutiny, with his revolt against David and against God. It's as if David has given us an example there of Psalm 2, a practical example of what he means by the rebelliousness described in Psalm 2. Then from 10 to 14, we get this picture of wickedness, those who deny the very existence of God. While there in the background, there are righteous who thirst for deliverance. And then from Psalm 15 to Psalm 24, the psalmist turns to the hope of the coming king. What kind of king will he be? Who is this king? Will he be righteous? Will he be a man like us? Will he be fallen? Will he just be a great military leader? And the psalmist tells us over and over again, he will be holy. He will be a just and righteous king. And he will deliver his own from this broken and sorrowful world. There's several ideas behind the context of Psalm 24. Different people have different ideas, conjectures about where and when this was written. The best seems to be that it was written as David led Israel in bringing the ark, returning the ark uh, back to Jerusalem after it had been lost to the Philistines. You remember Eli and his sons were poor poor spiritual leaders. And it was under their leadership that the ark became more of a, um, shall we say, a superstition. It became a lucky charm. And so when they were having difficulty on the battlefield, they, had to, they thought they needed to run and get the ark and bring the ark and put it out in front and that that would guarantee victory. They lost, they lost the significance of what the ark represented. You see, the ark was representative of the presence of God. But they saw it just for its tangible quality, that it was something that if we had, if we had this lucky charm with us, then we're guaranteed success. 
When the Philistines took the ark, you remember God made them so miserable, <laughs> so miserable. They thought they had this, this great source of power from the Israelites. And as they stored it and uh, tried to find use for it, God just made them miserable to the point that they were ready to get rid of it. And the scripture says that they placed it on a cart and they hitched two milk cows, two milk cows that had nursing calves there. So they were setting the, they were setting it up. They didn't really want to get rid of it, but at the same time, they wanted to give it an opportunity to move away. So they put it on a, uh, a cart. They hitched it to these two calves, uh, cows that had every reason to stay put because of the calves, calves they were nursing. And when they released it, the, the cows made a beeline up the valley of Sarek to uh, Bet Shemesh, where Israelites were farming. So this cow, these cows come rolling in with this cart with the Ark of the Covenant that had been lost for a time to the Philistines on it. And of course, Israel took it back in and they took it to the house of Abinadab. And this was about 10 miles outside of Jerusalem. And there it remained throughout Saul's reign and seven years into David's reign. So it was outside the holy city. It was outside uh, the place where it belonged for about 40 years, almost, uh, you know, practically a generation. After David had uh, acquired some measure of peace in the land, he took 30,000 choice men and designed to bring the ark, to escort the ark back to Jerusalem to its rightful place, to the city of Zion. Now, the first attempt did not go well. If you know your Bible, they placed the ark on a new cart and hitched it to a team and they started on their way. And it got as far as the threshing floor of a man named Nacon, and the oxen stumbled there. And when, it, when they stumbled, the ark began to teeter, rock a little bit. And a man named Uzzah instinctively put his hand out to stabilize it. And when he did, God struck him dead. This was a, uh, a, a very stunning development for all of them. In fact, David was uh, kind of upset about it. But I think David was probably more upset with himself than he was with God when it all settled out. Why such a severe judgment? Why such a severe judgment? Because this man doing something that was probably instinctive. Well, God gave Moses specific instructions how to construct the Ark of the Covenant. You remember, built with uh, acacia wood and overlaid with gold all over. And there were rings placed uh, along the bottom of the uh, ark and they had poles made out of the same wood and also covered in gold that were inserted into those rings. And so the way it was supposed to be transported was it was always, these poles were always sitting through the rings. So when it was in the Holy of Holies, wherever it might be, those poles stayed in place. And people were forbidden to touch the ark of the covenant. It's like walking up and touching God. This is the way God dealt with it. And so these specific instructions, which you can read about in Exodus 26, Israel ignored them. What did they do? Instead of doing what God had instructed them to do, they imitated, they imitated the methodology, the technology of the Philistines. They put it on a cart. 
Now, the Philistines were kind of forerunners, groundbreakers, you will, with developing tools and things of that nature. And so, I don't know, maybe the people of Israel said, well, you know, they transported it on an ark and nothing happened, so maybe that's the way we should do it. So, they made a new ark, thinking that would make some difference, right? This was new and innovative, groundbreaking technology. And God said, uh, I'm not impressed. I gave you instructions how this was to be handled. And it led to this severe judgment. Uzzah had no business touching the ark, no matter what the circumstances. He essentially assumed a responsibility that was not his to assume. He, by reaching out and taking the ark in hand, was saying, it's my responsibility to protect God. It's my responsibility to take care of God, that nothing happened here. And we just know that that's, that's uh, absurd, isn't it? So when David returned the ark finally on the second attempt, we don't see any mention of a cart. We assume that they went back to God's specific instructions and that the priests carried it on these poles back to the city of Zion. This is the occasion for Psalm 24. Imagine 30,000 men serving the king and the king himself who had taken off his robes of royalty and had donned priestly robes, vestments, and was leading in the worship. This was a worship processional. Now, we get excited about a parade, a victory parade for a championship team or, or a holiday parade or whatever. We stand and line the seats or the, the sides of the streets for, for hours waiting for this to start, don't we? We get all excited about everything. Well, this was a processional of worship for Yahweh, for God. And the king was leading out in this. So this is a song a song depicting this worship, this attitude that the people were bringing. And it's a song that should fuel our own worship even today, the attitude of it. And so I want you to hear, first, he tells us in verses one and two, we see this declaration of God's sovereignty over all creation. Right out of the gate, declaring that God is Lord over all creation. And the fullness thereof. In other words, there is nothing outside of his sovereign control. This word sovereign gets bantered about a lot. And it's not something that's common to us in a democratic society like ours. We don't really appreciate it. What does sovereignty mean? Well, it's talking about supreme authority, power, free from any external control. A human's attempt to live this way. We don't want any external control over our lives, do we? We, we like personal autonomy. We like self-control. We like self-authority. We like governing over ourselves. This is manifesting itself in literally every arena of life today. Humans are quick to rebel against every form of authority. It's happening in the schools, it's happening in government, it's happening at the drive-thru at McDonald's. 
I don't know, in the last couple of weeks, there have been two people who have climbed through the drive through window to help themselves, either to the cash drawer or to fulfill their own order. You wonder, you know, we've lost our minds, right? But this is acting out the broken, fallen nature of humanity. We're rebels at heart. The rules, the policies, the laws, we just don't want them to apply to us. We think we're better served by having our own set of rules. Recent surveys reveal a decrease in Americans who actually believe there is a God. Analysts said that this was the lowest that it's been in this country ever. I imagine there's any number of reasons for this, but one of them for sure is our obsession with self-rule. We push back. We, we don't like the creation account the Scripture gives because it makes the case that there is a sovereign God who is over all, in possession of all things. We'd rather believe that it's Mother Nature or the planet Earth. It's, you know, something that's benign and passive that won't challenge our authority. But God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all creation. The psalmist says it belongs to him. It's simply a matter of ownership. He owns it. We'd rather cede that ownership to something else that we can control. And it was created by him. Ex nihilo. It is out of nothing. You know, humans are very creative. You're creative, aren't you? Uh, we live in a society here in America. One of the, one of the great principles of uh, America over the last 200 plus years has been the freedom in uh, everyday life in the, you know, this capitalistic way of, of uh, economy, economizing and doing, going about our chore. It gives people the opportunity to figure things out for themselves. It taps into this ability to create. Charles Peace was painting my office this week as he's been painting Nathan's office and, and um, James's office. And so I kind of piggybacked on that and said, hey, it's time. You know, I hadn't had a coat of paint in here in about 15 years. Judy, I guess, had the last coat put on there. Uh, it's been a long time. So anyway, the, the downside to that, new fresh coat of paint against moving all those bookshelves. And so, you know, those bookshelves are heavy and moving all those books is a big investment. But, you know, something that hit me all of a sudden, about a little less than 30 years ago, there were two guys, uh, Don Edwards and his son, uh, developed a piece of round plastic that's kind of polished and slick on one side. And it's got a little rubber pad uh, glued into the center of it. And you can simply put that under one corner of a piece of furniture and it just slides like it's on skis on a ski slope. Now, that's an incredible invention. Can you imagine all the years of furniture being moved and toted and, you know, from the wagons going across the country, uh, the pioneers and people having to lift furniture and move it all around. And then just less than 30 years ago, these guys figured this out. 
Now, I was able to move all those bookcases in no time with just scooting them around on those little easy sliders, they call them. We're a creative bunch. But Don and Don Edwards, Don Sr. and Jr., did not create that idea of easy sliders ex nihilo. It's not out of nothing. They had to have pre-existing materials to do that. Materials that only the divine creator had created. He created out of nothing. He had to create the raw materials in order to create all of this and then to put it in sync so that it's continued to function throughout all history the way that it has in perfect alignment, even in the midst of our brokenness and sin. Creation is created by God and it belongs to Him. Why is it important? Think about toddlers. Downstairs right now, there's some toddlers gathered. And one thing we know that has happened in that room since they've been there is that someone has taken a toy from another toddler. You know the scene, right? You've seen this happen in daycare. You've seen it in your living room. You've seen it everywhere. Mine, right? Before they learn their names or your names, they learn to say mine. It's a microcosm of the sin problem running rampant in us human beings. And we take this creation, we take all of this and we say, mine, it's ours. The psalmist says it's not. It belongs to Yahweh. He and he alone is Lord over all things. We want to think we own it, but it all belongs to him. God created it. He entrusted the stewardship of it to Adam, to all humanity, and Adam quickly lost that stewardship. And God not only made creation, but he condescended and came into this creation and purchased it with his shed blood for a second time. He owns it twice. He founded it upon the seas, this verse says. He founded it upon the seas, established it upon the rivers. It's an interesting statement. Alan Ross says that there is ample reason to view this first verb founded as as present perfect tense, which means it says he founded it and he keeps on founding it every day, which is in perfect concert with Hebrews 1.3 where we read, He, that is Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds, he carries, he sustains the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 says, In him, Christ, all things hold together by the word of his power. This God who created it by the spoken word sustains it through the spoken word. The land rises up and rests on the seas and the rivers. Why is the psalmist using this terminology? It seems most believe that this psalm was written in response to a victory over the Canaanites at some point in time. Now the Canaanites had a a mythological system of belief. They believed that nature and different things in nature that actually had gods. And the language that's used here is indicative of that same language. These terms, seas and rivers, points to Canaanite gods. Two particular gods they had were Prince Sea, Yam, and Judge River, Nahar. 
These are the same words that are used here in this text. So to the pagans, these deities were powerful forces of the underworld. But to the Israelites, they were forces of nature created by God, by Yahweh. Defeating the Canaanites proved God's sovereignty over their gods, much like he did when he liberated his people from bondage in Egypt through the 10 plagues. Each week we gather together. We come in here and we follow a liturgy, a worship liturgy. And we follow a similar liturgy every week. But it always begins where? Where does it begin? Are you paying attention? How do we begin our worship? With God. We lift our eyes up toward God. We point you upward toward God. We get our eyes set on him first and foremost. We lift our eyes, our hearts, our minds toward a holy God. We fill our vision with his greatness, with his might, with his glory. And we do this because it's the best place to begin. It's also patterned in scripture. Isaiah chapter six, do you remember Isaiah chapter six? Isaiah said he was in the presence of God. He was worshiping God. He saw God in all of his glory. First and foremost, then came the interaction with God. Isaiah said, woe is me for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. How did he know this to be true? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, if we begin with ourselves, we're likely to stay there and we forget God altogether. And we we start justifying ourselves. We start finding reasons to trust ourselves. We start looking for ways to use ingenuity and innovation to make things work the way we think they need to work. But when we begin with a view of God, we are reminded that we are undone, we are fallen, we are broken, we are helpless, we are hopeless without someone to intervene. The psalmist follows the same pattern here. He declares God's sovereignty over all creation in verses one through two. And then in verses three through six, he presents a sobering question. Who is able to enter the presence of the Lord? Who's able to enter the presence of the Lord? He implies there is restricted access to Yahweh. This is more important than we like to think. Our society is rushing about in a chaotic fashion, speed, 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 fast, fast, fast. I need instant coffee. I need instant eggs. I need instant this. I need this, that, and the other. And, you know, be warned, if you're sitting at that red light and you're not ready to romp the accelerator when it flashes green, you're going to have someone blow their horn at you. Cultural impatience affects our approach to worship. It crashes in to the gathering of God's people. 
Anybody experience that this morning on your way here? Just a little bit of anxiety, impatience. Something's got to happen faster. Uh, some of you are thinking right now, would you get on? Get on. We know you got three points. We need to move on because lunch is coming. We treat worship sometimes like we pop in and get a microwave, pick me up, and then we are on our way. Modern churches, evangelicalism, often practice a false worship because we focus on all the wrong things and we ignore the main and only thing that brings us together, and that is Yahweh, a holy God, a majestic God, a glorious God, the creator of all things, who owns all things, including us. Many modern worship gatherings tend to just be pep rallies where we seek to feel our emotions and allow our emotions to be manipulated through tempo swings and mood lighting and anything else we can use. We can induce thrills with exciting music. We can encourage tears by elevating our sorrows and needs. We can feel better about our sin through how to be better seminars. Worship is a religious Disney world. Be happy, happy, happy. But worship's not a happy pill we take once a week. As the Psalms indicate, there's this vast array of emotion that we deal with as broken creatures in a broken world. And all of those factor in. Sometimes we're sorrowful. We're grieving over the brokenness. We're grieving over the sin. And it should be acknowledged not ignored, swept under the carpet. Sometimes we feel the pleasant blessings of God immediately. Sometimes we feel the heartache and suffering ordained by God. Authentic worship is not a happy pill. It's God's worship. It's God's worship. It's connecting us as fallen creatures to this transcendent God. To understanding who he is and how he is going to work in and through us to accomplish his divine purposes. Which is an incredibly mind-boggling thought. Why would he? We come together and worship and we read, we pray, we sing, we preach, we see the word of God together. In it, it reveals gladness and it reveals sadness. In it, it touches our joys and our griefs. In it, it fuels our adulation and it requires our confession. In it, it deepens our gratitude and orders our petitions. It elevates our contentment and acknowledges our emptiness. All of this is in God's word. Adding preferences and innovations change worship's DNA. We're certain to end up on an unhealthy, unhelpful trajectory. We may have good intentions, but it's so, so easy to become distracted, to lose sight of who we need to be focused on, become more passionate about ourselves than for God. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands, the one who practices clean actions, he who has a pure heart, 
Clean hands need a pure heart. You can't possibly have clean hands actions unless the heart is pure. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false, that is to emptiness? Who does not swear deceitfully, does not make a bargain that he knows he's going to betray, that he's going to breach? He does not worship what's empty, created things, idols. He does not vow to do what he intends to betray. The one who will be welcomed into Yahweh's presence has clean hands, pure hearts, worships Yahweh in spirit and in truth. He does not lead a double life, but is genuine, is righteous like God. The problem is the scripture says there's none of us who fit this description. It doesn't apply to one of us. Not one, not one can claim this for themselves. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We cannot enter his presence by our own efforts. We're condemned to sin and we're condemned to God's wrath. Our worship is unacceptable. It's unacceptable to God. We need an advocate. Who can go for us? Christ. Christ is the only one who can enter God's presence. John 14, 6, he answered this himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Only through me. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, for there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Only Christ has defeated sin. Only Christ has proven to have a pure heart and clean hands. He said, I always do that which is pleasing to the Father. Adam failed, and in Adam's failure, all of us fail. But Christ came as the last Adam and did not fail, but succeeded in always doing that which pleased the Father. And now only Christ can equip us to worship God in spirit and truth. David in this massive professional uh, processional was an incredible sight. What's happening? What's going on? Verses seven through 10 answer. The king of glory is coming. The king of glory is coming. The ark was out there in front, representative of the presence of God. Not just a gold box, not just filled with artifacts from the past, but representative of the person of God. They wanted to make golden idols shaped like calves. They wanted idols like other nations had idols. But God had said, here, here is what I am allowing to represent my presence among you so that you can be encouraged by this. The king of glory is coming. The gates were a formidable and critical part of a city's existence. You had walls around a city to keep enemies, raiders, those who would do harm to the city to keep them out. You had a gate a gateway whereby people would enter. And this was a place where the gates were able to be closed and to keep out anyone who would want to come in. And this is where the leadership of the city congregated and they met and made decisions for the city and they examined those who would enter in. 
You can picture as David in this processional, 30,000 strong making their way, rejoicing and praising God on their way up to Zion and calling out ahead, hey, you there, you who control the gates, open up those gates, lift them up that the king of glory may come in. What? What? You heard me. Open up those gates. The king of glory is coming in. Who is this king of glory you're talking about? Where is he? Who is he? He's the Lord. He is Yahweh, strong and mighty. He is the reason we're celebrating. He is the reason we're free. He is the one who has fought the battle and won. He's coming in. This belongs to him. Open up those gates. Open them up. The Lord God is coming in. About a thousand years after David and this processional entered in to the city of Zion, another processional entered the city. Matthew 21 gives us the description of that. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, when Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Come into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Go to the daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The psalmist said it better, I think. It's the king of glory. It's the king of glory. He is here. He is coming. He is strong and mighty. And the crowds that day were looking for a ruler to set them free from Roman oppression. They saw their political oppression as the most important issue on the table. They wanted a Messiah to liberate them. Jesus entered that day to free humanity from a greater burden, a greater oppression, a greater taskmaster. That was sin, death, and hell. Jesus wept that day outside of Jerusalem, not for himself, but for the people's hardness of heart. He came to fulfill the hope portrayed here in Psalm 24. The hope the joy, the glory, the gladness of the coming king. The king of glory who came to be a sacrificial lamb to save the lost. This is the king of glory, strong and mighty. Open those doors that he may come in. God has given us such a wonderful gift through his son, Jesus. Yet many people scoff at the gospel. They prefer to trust their own desires, their own preferences, their own innovations, their own creativity. 
They lift up their souls, the psalmist says, to what is empty and false. They ignore Christ. They fail to grasp the urgency of this present world in which we live, where the time is running out quickly. They believe, you see, that everything's going to turn out okay eventually. Practicing, practical, atheists, universalists. I believe this book is the very word of God. It is the creator's revelation of himself, his plans, his purposes, his future. And it makes clear, it makes abundantly clear that those who believe the gospel and turn to Christ will be included in his future glory. And by the same token, it makes very clear that those who ignore Christ, who reject his gospel, will face God's wrath. Psalm 11, four through seven says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. And the one who loves violence, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face but not the unrighteous. God's wrath and judgment is a terrible reality. The human beings are free to believe whatever they choose to believe, but choosing to believe something different will not change God's truth, God's reality. He has stated clearly what's in store for all creation. Those who believe the gospel and repent will be spared God's wrath Saved to the very presence of God. They will be declared righteous. To be justified before God. Their future is grand and glorious. It's a future filled with incredible worship. In the presence of this holy God. But those who do not believe and repent will be judged. In fact they're condemned already. Living in this physical existence on borrowed time. But soon, very soon, God's mercy is going to give way to his justice. I pray that you will believe and repent before it's eternally too late. For those in Christ, the future is a wonderful and joyful hope. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. How does one believe the gospel and repent? How does one believe and repent? Is it just that easy, pastor? What does it mean to believe the gospel and repent? It means to take God's word as truth. To believe that we are all sinners, that we have all, we have all failed before God. We are broken that left to our own devices, we always choose that which is wrong. We always choose that which is in rebellion toward a holy God. And that God promises judgment for those that are trapped in their sin. It means believing that Christ, God condescending, leaving heaven, coming down into this earth, dawning flesh, dwelling among us, living perfectly as the last Adam making a new race of God worshipers. 
And all who believe and trust that his atoning work on the cross when he shed his blood and died for the sins of those who will call upon him, those who will put their faith and trust in that as their only hope, that God says those people will be redeemed. I will justify them because they have believed in my son. Turning from sin, turning to trust only Christ that he sufficiently paid the wages owed to God for sin. His resurrection validated that God had accepted this payment as sufficient. Repent and turn from your sin and self-reliance and trust only in Christ. This is what it means to believe the gospel. To give up on yourself, your methods, your efforts, and to trust only in what Christ has done. And those who refuse, judgment awaits. For all who believe and repent, the king is coming again. He's coming again. Whether you repent now and believe upon him or whether you refuse him now, the king is coming again. For those who have repented and believed on him, he's coming as a loving heavenly father to draw you into his presence to be with him forever. For those who have rejected him, he comes as a fierce, fierce reigning and ruling judge. Look, John said in the Revelation, I see a great white horse and there is a rider on that horse whose name is Faithful and True, who has many crowns upon his head and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and that name by which he is called is the word of God and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, we're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He has no rivals. He's king all by himself, the King of glory. I pray your trust is in this king today. If not, I pray today is the day when you put your trust in him, that you repent of your sin and throw yourself on his mercy seat out of his invitation as he calls to you. Let it be so, for we pray in Jesus' name. Father, thank you for your grace and your glory and your mercy. I pray that, Lord, today we understand what's at stake in the gospel. What's at stake in our gathering together as your people, as your bride? Lord, we pray today that your word might go forth with great power, anointed and ordained by your spirit to regenerate hearts, broken hearts, fallen hearts, to make them new again. The only way that that can happen is through Christ. Make it so today. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.